Today on Never Was a Gamer, what if be gay do crimes but super, super straight? Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is my accomplice and co-conspirator, Dimitri. Hi, thanks so much for joining us today as Michelle, I guess, is going to play the grandchild game of one of her favorite games, (laughs) Uniracers. Yeah, one of the three games I was good at growing up. (laughs) So we'll see if those Uniracer skills um, can translate. I can't imagine. To our game for these next two episodes, Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Specifically Grand Theft Auto Vice City, but we will be talking about the Grand Theft Auto series generally as well. Yeah, I I feel like I should say up front, I'm a little bit concerned about how I'm going to vibe with this game right now. Yeah, there's been, I think this is the first game where you seem hesitant to even approach it. Yeah, I I just like, my head is in this space where I'm just thinking about like, police violence and like kind of the breakdown of social systems and like all this really hard big picture stuff like pandemics like if the world feels so unsafe right now and I don't know I this game that's like about like not giving a shit about anyone else in the world at least I think that's kind Mm. of what it's about. Um, I just am not, I don't know that that's like the, the, uh, vibe that I would pick up to play by myself in a, in, without this pod, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, one of the central premises of this show is that as much as we try to place these games within the moment and within the historical context, we can't separate them from the world in which we're playing them. Yeah. And I, and right. And that's a fine. And that's probably especially true when we're playing a game that takes place in the the kind of real world, no matter how abstracted or sensationalized this version of reality is. Right. Like it's not Mario 64. Right. <laughs> sadly. Yeah. yeah, it's about a real place, I think, more or less. It's a it's a fictionalized version of a real place. Okay. Yeah, they're all kind of like that. And and it's a game, as you know, that contains imagery of civil unrest and violence in urban spaces and police brutality. And even though the game might treat them as pretty flippant and situate them in this fictionalized 80s Miami it's going to be hard for, I think, you to and anybody to play this game without that imagery coming through and being filtered through the lens of the present. So, yeah, which is that's, a time when that stuff does not feel flippant. Exactly, like. <laughs> yeah. And and again, maybe I'll be proven wrong after replaying this, but from what I remember, um, Vice City, I don't think, brings up issues of systemic racism sure. or state-sanctioned violence. Uh, I don't think that's top of mind to the game. Right. And I know San Andreas doesn't deal with that well at all. But right, that's the lens through which you're going to play it. And and that's fine. Um, but yeah, just as I think a caveat to maybe the next discussion is that we might bring a gravity to what we're seeing that isn't necessarily in the text itself. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't matter because that's going to be present for us. And that's just how you have to deal with culture in general. It's um, a healthy practice to not separate yourself completely from the world, even as you're engaging with an artwork, because that artwork exists within a culture. Totally. Um, and who knows, there might be something in the game that you find cathartic, or maybe you'll enjoy playing around with it. Uh, you never know, but I guess that's the hope. But before we get into Grand Theft Auto, I, I have to I have to read you this thing I found. Okay. So as Archive I, Showcase, <laughs> Archive Showcase. So as I prepare for these episodes and look through old magazines, I often come across things that they don't necessarily relate directly to the topic, but I, I just, they're so wild, I have to, we have to bring them up. Yeah. So this is something I found in Play Magazine 
Um, the second issue of Play Magazine, which is the... Dave's Play Magazine. Dave Halverson's Play Magazine. <laughs> All roads lead back to Dave. And it's in the section of their magazine where they just have game news and stuff. And it's this new feature called Game Divas, Chicks That Play dot 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 games. And here's here's where, I, where I'm really struggling. I don't know if this is satire or not, so I need you to help me. What is the year? It's 2001. Okay. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So is this satire? So there's this preamble setting up this new feature, Game Divas. So it says, like it or not, boys. And boys here is spelled with a Z, which makes me think maybe satire. But but I don't know, early 2000s, so it's hard to tell. So like it or not, boys, in steadily increasing numbers, females are piercing the veil of our game sanctuary. Sure, it'll be weird talking to your woman about driving assault vehicles in Halo or having her kick your ass at racing games. But look on the bright side. No more whining about how expensive games are. She'll forget about the limited and shop with you at EB and Babbage's instead. Action movie loving girls can't be far off. And then it has a feature where there is an interview with a woman in the games industry. Not satire. And I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> not emphatically not satire. Yeah, I don't think it's satire. Why, um, why not? A couple of things. First of all, I think, well, I guess it is. It is play. I I think they would market more clearly in if they were if this magazine, which is otherwise news and real like real uh, opinion pieces and stuff like that, was going to have a satire section. I think they would market more clearly. Right, and I did go look at their editorial board and their list of writers, and there are no women uh, credited for this issue, so we can assume that this is also written by a guy. I was going to suggest that okay. that I was going to imply that very heavily. No women got paid in the making of this content. Um, yeah, Dave gonna be Dave. I don't know if Dave wrote this, but he is the editor. He definitely signed off and yeah. said, "This is this is the kind of content we want in our magazine." Uh, why did you make me hear this? Well, for if you re- one because I it's, mean it's fun, but but why? One because it's wild. Yeah. Two because it does. It's really emblematic of this hostility that I know you still feel. Sure. Um, that some of some of this type of rhetoric, even if it's not as bold faced as this, still exists often. In some cases, it's even more toxic than this. Yeah, there's, um, there's plenty of YouTube that sounds like this. <laughs> but really, the real reason is because I think this directly relates to a question we're going to have about Grand Theft Auto. Is this satire? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the developers of Grand Theft Auto, especially of Vice City, like kind of the three trilogy, so three Vice City San Andreas, mm-hmm. they would clearly say that it is satire. And I think we want to reflect on whether it we think it is. Is it um, well-produced satire then, or is it poorly written satire? And, and it's unclear. And just like this, I think for me... Satire needs to be clear. I need to come away as a reader knowing whether it was intended to be satire or not. For me, that's really important. <laughs> we do not tolerate ambiguity in this house. We, If you do not stick a crying Statue of Liberty in the back, how are we supposed to know how that's... to be morally instructed by your tech? No. I want to see the president dressed as a bank robber running away with a little sack that says freedom on it. No. That's how I know no. that I, this is an upright... That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I still think there's room for artful satire. I think there's room for nuance in the satire. But in all cases, I think it needs to be clear whether the thing is intended to be satire or not. I do not have any patience, especially in the year 2020. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Of 
stuff that could be read as satire or it could be read as pandering to the very people who other people think it is satirizing. Yeah. And then they get to smugly go, mm, it's satire, stupid. Yeah. That I- yeah. Right. And especially when satire is so often used as a defense for things that are just kind of falsehoods that don't actually have a, a perspective on the world. Right. Yeah. What you're talking about is specificity of perspective, right? Yes. Like there has to be, everything has to be pointed in one direction towards what you are actually trying to say, mm-hmm. as opposed to just scattershot. Ah, we just put a bunch of stuff in there. Like. Yeah, and I need to know where you stand on this issue if you're writing satire. I don't want satire that can speak out both ends of its ass. Sure. That's all I'm saying. Okay. All right. <laughs> and so does does Grand Theft Auto speak out of all ends of its ass okay. <laughs> is a question that we want to address next episode. Great. But before we do that, maybe we should just establish what you know in your history with Grand Theft Auto. This is a pretty major franchise now. Yes. So what do you know about it and why is it taking you so long to play it? Because uh, I've never wanted to for a single <laughs> second. <laughs> this is, I mean, one of the funny things about this is, okay, so what I what I know is you steal cars and drive around, you get in police chases, you do some crimes. Maybe it's a robbery, maybe it's something else. You shoot guns, probably a lot of different types of guns, I'm going to guess, and you cause chaos. And I think that's the fundamental joy of this game is like... You do something very naughty and then you flee, you run away and you get away with it while making a huge mess. I think being being a very naughty boy is <laughs> being a very naughty boy who carjacks is like the fundamental experience. Okay. That's what I think. Do you think this naughty boy has a greater purpose beyond just causing chaos? God, who knows? <laughs> okay. Who knows? Not not a guess. Are you not expecting a narrative? No, I I, I think Certainly by three, I think for how long these games end up being, I think they must have okay. a narrative. Because um, I'll say the first, like Grand Theft Auto, the first one, like the 1997 version, the top-down version, didn't really have a narrative. Right. It, that was very much Naughty Boy causing chaos with very loose mission structure. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you that right now, that these, starting at starting at three and on, they do have pretty strong narratives. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and uh, I mean, I know that they're open worlds and maybe they're one of... They're like in some sense pioneering, even if they're not like exactly the first or whatever. Um, I know they've had a big influence on open world stuff. Um, And honestly, a lot of this comes through what the little bit that I know about GTA 5. So like Mm. I know GTA 5 is like maybe one of the most lucrative games ever made. It's it's like it must be six or seven years. I mean, I don't even know when it came out, but it's still making money hand over fist. Um, yeah, so GTA Five came out 2013, which is pretty much right around yeah. the time when you got back into games. Yeah, so like you- my my whole adult gaming life, GTA has been just like a license to print money for this company. Right, I don't, yeah, you might not know a month where GTA Five wasn't a top seller. Yeah. Maybe the first like <laughs> yeah. three months that you were back into games and then yeah. as soon as it released, that's like in the top 10 every month. Yeah. That's pretty much. So, I mean, in my head, this franchise is just like a juggernaut. And okay. I, I don't know if it always was. I have no idea. But, you know, that's that's the connotation I'm bringing. But like, I, I'm feeling stressed about this because I do not have good vibes about this game. This is maybe hmm. the most stressed I've been about playing a game since like Metal Gear Solid and my anxieties about Kojima. (laughs) And like, I think I was much more ready to also like a lot about that game than I am about this one necessarily. This is the first game we've really picked up where 
I think I'm a little prejudiced against it, and I don't have a good guess as to whether that is warranted or not. Okay, so what are the where are the prejudices coming from? Okay, what are they directed so, at? So one thing is, um, I've never heard anyone say something positive about these games that made me go, "Oh yeah, cool!" Like that sounds. <laughs> You know, like most games, even if like I'm not going to play that, I can hear someone describe what is good about it and be like, I get why that is for I I get it. Do you have an example? In the context of GTA 5, like hearing about people having fun running around being these like gleefully shitty, gross characters like Trevor in your like little crime triumvirate that you... Okay, so you know about Trevor. Yeah, I know about Trevor. Enough to know that you don't like him. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I'm not supposed to, but it's just like, I don't... I don't need to be that guy. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm good. Like, so I don't know. I just... I, I feel like the games kind of radiate like a meanness or like a broiness um, that's... Ugh. And I, I, the thing is, I also do know that I don't know the specifics, but I know that there is sort of a, a moral panic phenomenon attached to these games, like a certain kind of uh, conservative cultural critic who wants to talk about video games being fundamentally bad for young people or whatever. Well, GTA will be like a favorite or was a favorite franchise for a while for those people to point to. And I hate the idea that that has wormed its way into my head and is informing my context. So I'm really looking forward to disentangling this, but um it just it it these games feel like they are not for me and I kind of feel like they don't really want me there either. Hmm. So yeah, and and I wonder if part of it is like these games seem really invested in like you play as a criminal and that is like just a a way of categorizing like a person who does a crime does not become a fundamentally different species that is like criminals <laughs> like is someone who wants to talk about criminals as like the the noun almost always to me that's an indicator of like a fairly stupid worldview okay so you're not expecting there to be any kind of character arc beyond your identity is just you identify as a criminal and that's it i guess i'm expecting it to navigate within that space okay so do you not like um, movies about crime or about quote unquote criminals, gangster movies. Uh, so, uh, gangster movies. The only one I've really seen is Goodfellas, and even that was pretty recent. Uh, it was fine. I don't. I, it, this is not something that is super compelling. I didn't watch The Sopranos. Um, I don't watch cop procedurals really. I don't watch like I'm a lawyer in my day life, and I don't watch like law firm shows. Like I don't. I've, right. I don't care about Law and Order. I never have. There's like, you know, there's exceptions to every rule. Like, you know, there's a strain of noir that I like, I like The Wire. Please send me your congratulations on that. Good only, take. only the prestige. I know. I, Though, know. I mean, Goodfellas would, would fall there into the prestige category as well. And that I could take or leave. But so I, I don't, this isn't like my home. This is my home base in, okay. uh, in media. Because I will tell you, and this will come up when we get uh, into the history more, but these, these games are very much in conversation with crime movies. And, oh, okay. like, and crime movie culture. Which I have not mostly seen, except yeah. for some heist ones. I do like a heist. Yeah, it, this is one thing is I don't know. I mean, until you just told me that, I don't know what kind of... There's lots of different kinds of media about crime and police and people who do crime, right? Like, there's there's heist stuff, there's cops and robbers, there's uh, 
organized crime stuff. Like, I, I don't know what this okay, is I mean, leaning the, on. These games wear their influences very much on their sleeves. So Grand Theft Auto 3 was very much influenced by The Godfather. Okay. Vice City is influenced by Miami Vice and Scarface. Okay. It's, it's all I've over. I've not seen either of those. Okay, so a lot of these ideas We're are going to are gonna feel very creative <laughs> and fresh to you, which is good. <laughs> My goodness. I mean, I, I think also it's probably worth saying that I... As little as I know about Grand Theft Auto, I know weirdly kind of a lot or feel like I do about Rockstar, the company that makes these games. The name is corny. I hate it. <laughs> okay, so so that okay, so that it wasn't always Rockstar making these games, or at least not under that name. So this is how it ties back, because you probably remember, maybe you don't, but um right, Uniracers is not a Rockstar game. Sure. So the the developer of Uniracers and the de- which is the same developer as Grand Theft Auto the 1997 mm-hmm. version was DMA Design. They're a Scottish company, and they they're what became Rockstar North. And basically, um, these the two brothers who were working at uh, BMG. Oh, the Housers, right? Yeah, the Hauser yeah, brothers. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Doogie and <laughs> oh, <God>. Greg. <laughs> no, Sam and Dan Hauser were working at um, BMG Interactive. They get a whiff of. Grand Theft Auto, the original in mm-hmm. 1997 version being developed while working there. They they say they like the nonlinearity of it. They like the gameplay over graphics approach. And they really liked in that game what they saw as a British interpretation of American culture. Hmm. So they really take an interest in DMA and Grand Theft Auto or what gets Grand Theft Auto um, published, okay. the original. Um, what's interesting about DMA design is that as you know, through Uniracers, they had a, they actually had a really close relationship with Nintendo at one point. Nintendo actually published Uniracers. They were really one of these um, core members of what was known as the Dream Team for Project Reality, so the N- Nintendo 64. Oh. And basically what happened, more or less, is that they started making games that seemed too kind of mature, didn't meet the Nintendo brand enough, and Nintendo kind of just split ways with them. Hmm. So what happened to DMA is that through some corporate restructuring, they got bought by this other company, Take-Two Interactive which then rebranded them as Rockstar Games, which was meant to be their high-profile prestige publishing label. So Rockstar Games, the publisher, published DMA Design's Grand Theft Auto 3 in this case. They were still DMA designed when making Grand Theft Auto 3. Okay. That company only was renamed Rockstar North after Grand Theft Auto 3 came out. Okay. And then eventually a bunch of different studios just changed their name to Rockstar to kind of all take part in the brand. Okay. So Grand Theft Auto through Grand Theft Auto 3 are technically DMA design games and Vice City is really the first one developed under the Rockstar developer label and not just the Rockstar publisher label. So basically you're playing the first official Rockstar game. But yeah, but it's really weird that you know the Housers, I find. (laughs) This is one of those instances where... Like you don't identify as a gamer, but I think you—they're not household names, right? They're not—they're not, they're not yeah. Kojima's. Yeah, yeah, they're actually yeah. pretty reclusive. They don't give a lot of interviews with the press, so it's very strange that you actually know who they are. Sure, I mean, I—I I know that they seem very proud of themselves, which I suppose they should be because they are making a preposterous amount of money. Um, I mean, I'll tell you why I know about them, and the answer to that is messed up labor practices okay. <laughs> like if you want to immediately uh get me on side against you like having a big expose come out that talks about what a trash boss you are how hard it is to work for your company especially if you're not like an unencumbered white dude who can be there 22 hours a day like so you're referring to a lot of stuff that came out during the development of red dead redemption 2 yes right? okay. correct yeah um so i just what i saw of the company and of I think it was Dan Hauser has done more public 
talking over that period than the other one. Um, and he's the one who just left. Right, right, right. Uh, th- honestly, that informs a lot of a lot of my perspective, and just kind of feeds into my sense of it being mm. kind of just a, a really like mean spirited, punching down kind of kind of scene, which uh, I'm just not gonna be really fond of ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're going into this such in a different headspace than I did when I first encountered Grand Theft Auto. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so that's not true. So I guess the first Grand Theft Auto I actually encountered was the 1997 Grand Theft Auto, mm-hmm. the the 2D top-down um, version. And you're like junior high at this point? Yeah-ish. Yeah, okay. Um, I, saw, I remember seeing it, at, probably younger than that, actually. Okay. And I remember seeing it at a, at a friend's house. And he was like, he was he was kind of into it and just like, look, you can go into any car, you can kind of run around, do what you want. Like it still had that freedom of exploration, mm-hmm. but just because of the perspective alone and just what it looked like and how hard it was for me to control the car, I just did not care. I did not <laughs> this care about this. does not go scary. left or right. I will not be playing. <laughs> and there didn't seem to be a point because really in those, the point is just to cause ca- enough chaos to get enough money to move on to the next city. Sure. Especially in the first one. So yeah, I just did not really have an interest, but I did see it. But then after three came out and started getting all of this really good press i thought maybe i'd be interested at at this point i didn't have so it came out in 2001 i didn't have a ps2 yet Mm -hmm. Um, and so i really waited and i got it on pc the next year when it was released on pc and this is kind of in a lot of ways mimics the mario 64 my experience with mario 64 um, (laughs) both in a way that i think this is a game that really did transform how i understand what games could be but it was also a case of being a pain in the ass before i could actually play this game Hmm. Because I got this game for PC and then immediately realized that my PC was not good enough to run this game. <laughs> ah. So it was very much the same experience. Um, I did get a PC upgrade out of this. <laughs> I it, Like reflecting back, I'm so spoiled. And I don't know if I, I might have helped pay for this one, but even still. But brought the game home, didn't run. So yeah, took it to the guy. You got a guy. We do. Yeah, we live in a small town. It's much easier to just have a guy than to like go to the city. Yeah, to, right. To get the computer fixed. So, yeah, it was just a guy down the road. But it still took about a week. So there was a week where I was just, you know, looking at the back of the oh box. Oh, my God. It had the depressing period, too. <laughs> just, like, thinking about what this game could be like. Oh, God. Um, but, yeah, it was very much the same thing where we just dropped the computer off and was like, just do what you need to do to make this run, please. And then we'll know that it's probably good enough moving forward. And, yeah, I, I do remember going to pick it up from the guy. And and he was like, yeah, okay, it's, it's all working now. And I, I put the game in to make sure that it runs well. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's a sweet game. <laughs> You're like, the cool adult likes my game. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I think I know it's a sweet game. I want to play Give it. Me my computer. Yeah. I wonder if he like held on to it for a few days. Like, <laughs> it, was, that... it was ready almost immediately. <laughs> but yeah, and then I remember bringing it home and putting it in and just the opening of that game. So some stuff happens and it opens with you being transported to to prison in a van mm-hmm. and then something happens your van gets overturned and you kind of escape and you okay. break out and you're just put in liberty city and uh you're with this accomplice of this guy named eight ball and he's like oh i know somebody let's just get in a car and go there and so you just go into a car and then it's just open mm. you could go to the mission but i it, it just i don't know like just that moment like getting into the car and just being like okay i can actually go i don't have to go to the mission i can kind of go anywhere it was just really just changed my understanding of games at that hmm. moment because remember like up until this point like my understanding of open worlds i never really played pc rpgs so i never played like El- um, like ultimas or the elder scrolls series okay or any rpgs that had an, an open world component the closest thing for me was like mario 64 and like ocarina of time okay which those worlds are kind of open but not to the same extent 
Um, and I knew that Shenmue existed, which is a different kind of open world, but I never played that. So really, this was my introduction to this open world. And I just remember being kind of taken aback by this choice and freedom. But I wasn't overwhelmed by it. Instead, I, I was kind of excited by it. So I think I might have been the right age for that cool. to happen. And you're talking about three right now, right? Not Vice City? Right. Yeah. Three is the one that really transformed my understanding of games. But I guess this brings up a good point. Like, why are we doing Vice City then and not three or or not some of the more recent ones? And and for me, my rationale is really the same reason that we played Link's Awakening instead of Link to the Past. Whereas for me, uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 set the template and Vice City is what perfected it. I think for me, Vice City is Grand Theft Auto crystallized. Mm. It's the most Grand Theft Auto that it can be while also staying in its lane ah. and not overextending. Okay. I mean, and almost immediately after Vice City, I think they really started overextending in ways that didn't work for me. Hmm. San Andreas, for example, is bloated mechanically. They added a bunch of new systems that really aren't necessary and just really are just kind of extraneous. The map is way too big for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more importantly, San Andreas was where they moved away from their initial idea that they wanted to kind of contend with the fantasy of America uh-huh. and the way that America is portrayed in movies and crime movies and really wanted to tackle actual American problems. So so San Andreas oh. is um, it takes place in San Andreas, which is pretty much L.A. And it it stars a black protagonist and and it's. It's an homage to 90s movies about black culture like Boys in the Hood, but movies that in a lot of ways are responses to racial tensions, responses specifically to the L.A. riots. To very real things happening. Yeah. And this game wants to try to deal with those issues, like actually wants to deal with real racial tensions and just like cannot uh, like Grand Theft Auto is not the place to do that. I feel like a team that is equipped to really nail that. (laughs) And we'll talk about this more next time. I think after you've after you've played Vice City and we can talk about how San Andreas dealt with these things. Okay. But I think it was really an overextension of what these games are capable of doing thematically and what the writing is able to do thematically. And then by four and five, I think, is really where the games start buying their own hype a little too much. They become a little too self-serious for me. (laughs) I think whereas, for example, three and Vice City were homages to classic cinema, were homages to The Godfather or to Scarface, I think now... The creators think that they are creating the next this generation's Godfather and Scarface. I see. And again, for me, it just doesn't work. I'm sure there are people who disagree and think those narratives are just the pinnacle of culture today. Uh huh. I do not think that. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair. So yeah, we can we can get into that a bit more next time. But yeah, Vice City for me is all that Grand Theft Auto could and for me should be. Okay. Got it. I think it's the best time. That, that we could possibly have with it. Great. Even though I, the controls are probably a little janky. And yeah, especially because, as we said, w- because of the context of when we're playing this, this game is just the one that is the most, for me anyway, pure fun. It has a summary vibes that takes place in Miami. It's this 80s, kind of the 80s veneer, like 80s culture is all over it in a much better way than like in an Ernest Klein novel. Great. That talks about the 80s, but doesn't really feel like the 80s. <laughs> This is this is like if you imagine your fantastical version of the eighties, this is it. And like I think that's, white neon, yeah, like that, yeah, okay, great. So I think so. Hopefully, you do have some fun with it, uh, w- with it as well, and uh, and hopefully that is these positive things are a bit more of a sell than things you've heard about Grand Theft Auto in the past. That's probably a helpful balancing perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't want to, I can't dismiss how much fun I had and my with my brothers and my cousin playing these in the summer. 
just fooling around in these games. Three and Vice City in particular, just so much fun, so much laughter um, was produced by these games. And so hopefully you get a little bit of that and aren't just kind of angry at them the whole time. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to do my best to have fun. I like to have fun. I'm going to try it. back and now i'd like to talk a bit more about your experience with open worlds because for me the draw of grand theft auto was always its open world the missions were fine but the world is what really sold the game and so for you going into this is that a sell for you do you have a lot of experience with open world games which ones have you played do you like open world games <laughs> that's a lot of questions yeah. um <laughs> so i have played all the fallouts from three forward uh, obviously New Vegas is the best. Um, I've played more contemporary ones like The Witcher 3, Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, so I, I've played some and, and a good number of other games that sort of have elements of open worldness without being necessarily pure open world games, if that makes sense. Okay, so what, what makes an open world to you or what are the elements of open world <laughs> Sure, games? how can you have open worldness? Yeah. Um, I think to me an open world game is really defined by the experience of being unleashed into a space on a map that you are free to move through based on your own inclinations, where there's a lot of freedom to engage with what you want to engage with um, in somewhat the order that you want. And that has to include, if there are story elements in the game, at least some degree of the the story or, or mission stuff that's out there, um, but really defined by feeling like a a large area is yours to explore and the game's not going to tell you you have to go down this alley right now. Um, you're going to go down the alley that you want to go down. <laughs> <laughs> so this is interesting because it's, I mean, I think over the course of playing games for this show, your tastes have expanded or things that you think that maybe you're predisposed to not liking, you actually did end up liking. But one thing we do know about you is that you do like narrative and narrative structure. Sure do. So do you like open world games that by virtue of their openness can't give you very strict narrative structure? So yeah, this is a huge thing. And I think one of the most interesting tensions in open world games for me is uh, I think they they demand a player who will actively manage their own experience of the game. Um, and what I mean by that, for example, when I was uh, just coming back to games as an adult, one of the things that I played really early in my journey is um, a bit of Deus Ex Human Revolution. And I ruined that game for myself by playing it wrong. And what I mean by that is um, I, when I was released into the the sort of space that they're in, Deus Ex, that get game's not fully open world. It's in the open world elements category. Um, you're unleashed into uh, the city. And my approach, having never really played one of these games before, was to just start going up one alley, look, exhaust one entire building up and down, talk to everyone, go to the next building up and down, talk to everyone, and really sort of move through the space in this like indexing sort of format. But what that meant is that within like an hour, I'd fully lost track of all <laughs> of the 40 different quests I had currently going on. I would encounter NPCs and they would be like, 
oh, Dr. Harvey sent you. Finally, you and I would be like, <laughs> I um, I vaguely remember that was a who are you? What am I supposed to be doing? And then I'm digging through a menu trying to figure out what quest this is linked to. <laughs> and so I just ended up having this really disjointed, like very quickly, I felt so disconnected from the main thing my character was supposed mm -hmm. to be doing. Like I completely lost that. You stumble into huge conflicts very much by accident that this is clearly supposed to be an important plot battle and you're just, they're just some guy who's shooting at you. Do you like, and so that was my, an early experience of me not taking responsibility for my own movement through that game. And, and maybe that's not a hundred percent on me, but I think since then I have been much smarter about I want to do a little bit of of getting a feel for the space. I want to I want to move through and kind of understand generally where things are. And then I want to start picking a plot or a, a quest that I have to do and sort of following that one through more or less um instead of just <laughs> talking to everyone who's here and then taking two steps north and talking to everyone who's there because you will lose your bearings completely <laughs> in that way. Yeah, what's I think really interesting about the open world games that you've played is that they pretty much come out of RPGs, right? Like out of that trajectory. So if you think of open worlds as like a, as on a continuum, there is this history of open world games that do stem from RPGs, like the Fallout series, for example, or like the Ultima series, and that have kind of been carried over. And uh, Dan Hauser actually talks about this of how one thing that was facilitated possibly by Grand Theft Auto being an open world is that is that there started to be a convergence between action games and RPGs, where right action games were borrowing the open world elements from RPGs and RPGs started borrowing some of the combat elements um, from action games. And, and it's increasingly hard to tell those things apart. Hmm. I won't tell you why, but the structure of Grand Theft Auto and how it deals with its open world is, is kind of fundamentally different from how RPGs deal with it. So that maybe that's something to just keep in the back of your mind and we can pick that up next time after you've actually played it. Okay, cool. Uh, to see what you think about that, that approach. Good. Cause I'm still real bad at pacing. <laughs> And and I mean it it is this fundamental tension and, and Dan Hauser has has talked about this as being the key tension with the game that they were trying to figure out back in two thousand one with Grand Theft Auto three because as we mentioned the the nineteen ninety seven original Grand Theft Auto didn't really have a narrative mm -hmm. but it was very important for them in the in Grand Theft Auto three and all the subsequent Grand Theft Autos to have a pretty strong narrative uh, through line and reflecting on this in in twenty eleven in an interview Hauser says quote. On the story side, one of our main challenges was that the top-down games really had no narrative at all. They'd been based on the idea of freedom. You could do what you want when you wanted to do it. We wanted to keep the idea of freedom and expand on that, and also put in what could be seen to be a somewhat contradictory idea, which was narrative. The real challenge was figuring out a way to structure the game that combined freedom, freedom to do seemingly anything at any time, to do a mission, not do a mission, to do something else, to work multiple storylines at once, but also have some kind of coherent narrative that brought it all together. And uh, I think it'll be up to you to decide whether they were successful at that. But yeah, you can see that there is that inherent tension. Like what does, and, and this brings us back to the conversation we had about ludonarrative dissonance. Right. Or what does it mean to have on the mission side, a character going through a pretty straightforward, clearly defined narrative, and then outside of the mission structure to be completely at your whims as a, as a player mm -hmm. and to where you're developing that character differently. RPGs, on the one hand, have a history of trying to integrate your character choices into the missions themselves so that you are somewhat of a consistent character throughout. <laughs> right. Action games, on the other hand, 
tend to have a very clearly defined story with a clear, clearly defined protagonist right, right. Um, that is going to play out the same for everybody. And I think that's what you're going to see with Grand Theft Auto. So I'm very curious to to hear your thoughts on what you think about their treatment of the open world. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I it is funny also because sometimes, uh, particularly with, you know, uh, keeping you sort of routed or funneled a little bit towards the mm-hmm. the sort of main plot, um, I do sort of feel like a lot of these games thrive and have their their real soul in the side stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like sometimes, first of all, there's the the pure lizard brain pleasure of exploring stuff and being rewarded for it or checking off to-do lists, you know, productive in a game in a way that I so rarely am in real Mm -hmm. life. But also when I think about something, I mean, The Witcher 3 is a great example of this for me where when I think about how strange and good the all the like Brookback Bog stuff Mm -hmm. is with the, the witches and everything, that's some of my favorite stuff in the game. And like, you have to let me live there for a bit. So I don't know. Yeah, there's a funny thing about where you want where you want people's attention to go or if you just abdicate that completely to the player. Yeah, it's got to be such a hard design challenge. Totally. Because, yeah, in these games, so much of the pleasure is in the tangents. Mm-hmm. So then how much effort do you need to put as a developer to really make sure that those tangents are pl- as pleasurable as they can be? And yeah, I think in some cases, it's often at the expense of the main of the main story. Yeah. Um, especially in RPGs. Yeah. And again, Grand Theft Auto deals with this in a in a slightly different way. And so we'll we can we can pick that up cool. um, after you've played it. Um, one of the things that I love about the the very complicated tangle of of side quests and stuff and doing things sometimes a little out of order in in these games is the unforeseen consequences, which can be some of the spaces where these games for me uh either really succeed or really fail. Um, like getting it's a thing that happens sometimes in Fallout, for example, where you'll stumble upon someone who wants you to go do something. They want you to go talk to someone or get something or whatever. And you're like, oh, I did kill that guy earlier. Uh, yeah, that I just can't do this for you. And you're like blocked off from a whole line of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of it not working. Where I Where I find it a really productive and cool tension is where sometimes you encounter... In, in a similar context, you can encounter someone later who will ask, who will give you a quest where, you know, maybe there's two different ways you could do it. And one of them involves this NPC that you had an interaction with earlier and they either like love or hate you now or whatever. And it can affect what your options are later down the road. Like, I love that stuff. I love, you know, my past actions coming back to haunt me or to structure my current opportunities or or what I past that I have to engage with. Uh, and that is a beautiful thing that happens in open world stuff sometimes for me. Yeah. Or at least in open world RPGs. Sure. Yeah. 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 This is, I mean, that's, that's most of my mm-hmm. open world baggage coming And even something this. like Horizon draws from that lineage. Yeah. Um, maybe even more than you'd expect being primarily an action game, but it does still draw from that lineage. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm actually kind of excited because I think Grand Theft Auto might be a very different style of open world game than you're used to. Cool. And what the open world means is it will be slightly different from what you're used to. So yeah, I'm excited to, to talk about that next time. Cool. I hope it has a good HUD. This is one weird thing I've been thinking about. I think uh, UX design, weirdly, becomes much more important in open world stuff hmm. than it is in other in like the same types of games that don't have an open world basis. I think, 
your ability to how you navigate, how you track things, how you engage and interact with the world, I think becomes you need such a more supportive system that's like what kind of things are you thinking here? I'm thinking about things like, um, you know, some of what we've talked about before with uh, how does your map work? How does tracking uh, quests or destinations or navigation or any of that sort of stuff goes? Do we just have sort of a compass along the top of the screen, which I think is how it works in Fallout? Um, do we have a, a much more, um, a, a more expressive set of, of directions that's based on landmarks? Do we have what information is being flagged for me in my environment versus what do I have to just notice? Um, how are my goals being tracked or indexed so that I easily can reconnect with the ones that I want to pick up? Um, I think it just, as you give the player more freedom, I think the you have to be more intentional and have a stronger, and by that I mean clearer, not just more, supports for them engaging with your world in the way that they want to and the way that you want them mm. to. Um, so that's something that I'm always looking at, when, especially when playing open world stuff. And I'm curious about how, how that works in this game. Yeah, I think you might be in for some surprises in terms of how Grand Theft Auto, especially because it is hailed as one of these quintessential open world games actually treats its open world. Cool. Um, it should be fun. Um, but now it might be a good time to look more closely at the history of this series with a special emphasis on Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City to give you a sense of the context in which it in which it emerged. And again, because Grand Theft Auto 3 really was the groundbreaking title, I, I want to focus more on that history because really Grand Theft Auto Vice City came out just a year later. And so it was a pretty quick turnaround on a sequel and it was very much promoted as as a sequel. Hmm. So I think the more interesting stuff is is thinking about where 3 came from. Okay. Because it really did kind of come out of nowhere. We talked about these games before that just aren't on anybody's radar and then all of a sudden kind of changed the industry. And Grand Theft Auto 3 is very much one of those. So it came out in October 2001. The PlayStation 2 had been released a year prior. And it was only really in 2001 that it was finally starting to come into its own. And, and it was good timing because also in 2001, in, in November 2001, you're going to have the Xbox released and you're going to have the GameCube come out. Okay. So the two competitors. So they're kind of playing a year of catch up with the PS2 and the PS2 is finally starting to get some really heavy hitting games. So in, in 2001, there was a long list of really anticipated PlayStation 2 games. Eco came out in September. Silent Hill 2 came out that year. Devil May Cry came out. Metal Gear Solid 2, which was one of the most anticipated games. Jack and Daxter, which was Naughty Dog's first game on the PS2. Final Fantasy X was coming out. So just kind of all of these big, heavy hitters, highly anticipated games were coming out within a few months of each other on the, on the PlayStation 2. As a consequence of that, nobody's really paying too much attention to this thing that Rockstar is doing on the side. Coming out of E3 that year, it was often not mentioned in magazines. It was hmm. not on people's lists of most anticipated games. Next Gen Magazine highlighted 22 games coming out of E3. GTA was not mentioned at all. Wow. And what's interesting is there was a lot of excitement for this other game that Rockstar is going to be publishing called State of Emergency, which was a beat-em-up where your goal would be to cause riots in an attempt to take down an oppressive capitalist regime. Okay. <laughs> uh, which ended up coming out, actually it got delayed and ended up coming out in, um, in 2002 to pretty middling reviews. Uh, but that's where the excitement was in 2001. Dan Hauser actually reflects on this and the disappointment of E3 2001. And he's, he says, a quote, the early part of showing people the game, including E3 2001, was disconcerting because it was incredibly underwhelming because we thought it could be magical. 
not the Holy Grail, but this thing that was 3D, but open and expansive, combining elements of hardcore action, driving, adventuring, all these genres, very cinematic and story-driven gameplay, the experience is really unlike anything you've ever seen. And people were scratching their heads around it. We were all, are we wrong? There's an enormous excitement around a few other games coming that fall. We went to E3 and everybody was obsessed by State of Emergency and no one gave a crap about GTA 3. <laughs> State of Emergency, we thought, was interesting, but not without its flaws, some of which never got resolved. <laughs> but GTA 3 was already running. We thought, this is amazing. But E3, I think, isn't the best place to show a game anyway. And that's definitely become solidified in our thinking since then. Oh, boy. And really, they have kind of avoided um, E3s since. <laughs> I mean, easy to do now. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, really coming out of it, though, there was there was very little anticipation. Online outlets were tended to be better. IGN actually gave it quite a bit of press in the few months leading up to its release. And even after its release, there was kind of some confusion about what this game is. You'd have certain outlets like an IGN or a GameSpot giving it very, very high grades, like 9.5s, 9.6s. And then you'd have other outlets just giving it kind of like a a more middling review, like an an 8, which is still a good good score. But... From a lot of, especially print outlets, very little understanding that this was going to change games forever. Hmm. Um, whereas other outlets like an IGN really did have their finger on the pulse and, and kind of understand what this could be if it, if it really took off. Even something like Play, like da- uh, Dave Halverson's uh, publication, they actually gave it a perfect score, but only devoted a quarter page capsule review to it in the review. Weird. Yeah, so it's almost like they they didn't give that they didn't plan for it to have that real estate, and then it's like, oh, this is this game <laughs> is actually something special, but we we weren't anticipating it at all, right? Um, so it really did kind of come out of nowhere, but was really embraced by the public, and within a year was the best selling PlayStation okay. Two game. Hmm. And the original Grand Theft Auto Three was really only topped by, in terms of sales, was really only topped by the Gran Turismo series, okay, so the racing series, and then Vice City and San Andreas. Okay. San Andreas was. Far and away the best-selling PS2 title ever. Wow. But when looking at how it was received and how people were previewing it and and reviewing it at the time, I think it really came down to what the reviewer valued. So those who wanted to discuss it as a conventional game with the story and a a mission structure tended to rate it lower than those who really emphasized the freedom of what you can do between the missions and how you can do what you want. And so you really see this split between games critics in terms of what they understand games to be and what they value in a game, which mm-hmm. is which is kind of interesting. And then the other thing that we see a lot is all the reviews mentioning how, quote unquote, adult this game is or how <laughs> mature it is. And a lot of critics speak of this as one of the first games for adults, which is interesting because we saw critics talk about Metal Gear Solid like that. I was like just going to say, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard this one before. And really, that's... It's a load of crap, especially if you've been playing a lot of PC games, right. <laughs> which have a long history of dealing with really adult themes. And again, and we can always get back and forth into this, like what games critics actually mean when they talk about adult. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Do you mean it has a swear? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, are there boobs or are they talking about like mature themes? Right. Like, and those things are separate, <laughs> but are often conflated. But, but really what was interesting here is that critics were highly on the defensive in a lot of cases. Like they knew... What was to come? Mm. Even the original 1997 Grand Theft Auto had a lot of controversy around it. Hmm. And so I think critics especially were prepared for for this to to come in the wake of Grand Theft Auto 3 coming out. So, for example, IGN, in their review for the game, has this has a paragraph, how, how, quote, this is not a murder simulator. Come to think of it, no video game I know of is. It's a work of entertainment, an escape from reality. And at times it reaches beyond the standard video game medium to the level of art. Um, that is funny, both in absolutely a preemptive sense and also how many different threads from games we've already talked about it pulls together in one place. We have the 
appeal to art. We mm-hmm. have the um, the uh, that finally our medium is growing up. We have the the um, I know people are going to misinterpret this. Please don't misinterpret mm-hmm. my thing. Please don't misunderstand this thing that I really like. Yeah, and. What's really interesting, though, is in the reviews. So on the one hand, there'll be paragraphs like that in the review. And then the same review, the reviewers say, like, I really like chopping up this. <laughs> I really I really enjoyed gunning down the pedestrians with, like, this this weapon. Specific, yeah. Yeah, like, this very specific weapon and, like, going into graphic detail about, like, the things they did. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I can understand why somebody <laughs> might think you're a sociopath just because of how you wrote that paragraph. Right. But again, this did become a huge cultural phenomenon. It became very popular. It did start attracting mainstream attention, as we'll talk about in a bit. And then in March 2002 is when we start hearing the earliest rumors that a sequel is coming out or or an expansion or something. People weren't really sure what it was going to be. The rumors that it would be called Grand Theft Auto Vice. E3 2002 was officially announced Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which was a brand new game, a full, a full game. Cool. Using the same engine, recycling some animations, giving it kind of a graphical overhaul, but there's a reason that wasn't called GTA 4. You know, it's like GTA 3.5. Sure. Yeah, this sounds like a lot of new game to make in a year. Yeah, it was an incredibly, incredibly fast turnaround. Yeah. Probably because, they, I mean, they had the engine built and sure. they used a lot of the same assets. But I mean, it looks, the setting is completely different. Obviously, a bunch of new vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, in this one, you can go into buildings, which was new. There are motorcycles that was new. Doing the whole 80s vibe, 80s inspiration is it takes a lot of work to yeah. to do it kind of authentically or at least authentic in terms of the way we think it yeah. ought to look yeah there's also the first one with a voice protagonist mm. basically the housers said they had kind of wanted to do one for three but because they were building everything from the ground up they were already dealing with too many other things they couldn't also contend with how do you have a a voice character in an open world sure. so they just made it a silent protagonist but here they actually hire ray liotta from goodfellas oh <laughs> to to voice the protagonist so yeah, it, it was kind of an extraordinary amount of work, I think, in, in a year for it to come out so quickly. Um, but yeah, before we play the game, I do want to show you, as always, some promotional materials around the game. Great. Advertisements and, t- and TV commercials. I want to show you both from GTA 3 and Vice City, because I think seeing how GTA 3 was promoted to the public is really important. That makes sense, yeah. Um, as well. And we're also going to take a look at some of the public controversy that um, emerged around GTA 3. Great. So we'll, we'll look at a little segment from, from Nightline. Awesome. So that's all, that's all <laughs> awesome. going to be in the show notes if you if you guys want to follow along. But before we do that, how do you imagine that Grand Theft Auto 3 or Vice City would be promoted? I would imagine that it is about, come be a very naughty little boy. <laughs> look out, pedestrians. Zoom through this city in a cool car. Um, what's the tone that you think these that these ads are going to take? Sick. Okay. Like um, like a a little playful, but not in a like childish way. Like in a in a um, college dudes are going to love this sort of way. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Let's go. Let's go take a look, and we'll come back and talk about what we saw. Okay. Cool. And we're back. And uh, over the break, Michelle looked at some ads. 
watch some television commercials, and then we watch a little uh, Nightline yep. on the controversy around <laughs> GTA and how it's destroying the youth of yep. America. Yep. Featuring the very evenly balanced teams of a cop, a child psychologist who is anti-violent video games, and a 17-year-old <laughs> doing his best to be reasonable. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Okay, we'll get there. Uh, But let's start with the print ads. So I showed you three ads that were also representative of the box art. So two for Grand Theft Auto 3 and one for Vice City. And the first one, I don't want to talk about it in too much detail. I just wanted to show it to you because that is what eventually became... That was the European box art and it was the original American box art, but it got changed at the last minute due to 9-11. So this game was actually supposed to come out September of 2001. But after 9-11, they had to take some time to... Um, change some things with one of the missions, just remove some of the imagery that would have kind of read really poorly okay. um, in the moment, and and including this busier, more violent art yeah. style on the on the box art. We, we've got explosions, we've got guns being pointed. Like, yeah, I, I can see where what you mean about that. Um, but the other thing that this brings up, too, is right that people would be playing this game pretty much in the aftermath of 9-11. So right. They're also... Right, so, and it's in New York, right? This one? Yeah. And it takes sort place, of like fake New Yeah, York. and three takes place in Liberty City, which is New York. Right. So that people playing at the time also wouldn't be able to really divorce themselves from the cultural moment that they're living in. Um, Different relationship, obviously, to policing at the time. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I think that certain images would still have read uh, a certain way. But because of because 9-11 kind of encouraged them to change the visual style of the advertising and the box art, we get the second image and, and what really becomes the template for the iconic Grand Theft Auto style moving forward. Um, what do you make of the of this image and, and this kind of Honestly, poster box art style? It's awfully cool. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of these like square tiles with all different dominant colors, and again, this really like graphic novelish style with cars and and close ups of faces with making real like expressions. Like it's a it's definitely someone with like an artistic eye and a vision. Like this this feels like the poster for a game. Uh, that knows what it is. Every time, even when I saw this as a youth and even seeing it now, it's classy. It's cool. Yeah. And again, I think this is the game aspiring to maybe something that it <laughs> not, isn't necessarily, but I think this is a, a, a really smart choice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, this style is so much more streamlined and more visually striking than the original um, box art style. And it does read as right mature. It kind of is callback to seventies movie posters that aren't as busy as the other one, not like B movies, but like, yeah. it's like it, it has prestige film qualities. Absolutely. And then yeah, the and I showed you the Vice City one, which is very much in the in the same style. Yeah. Um, any quotes from the from the Grand Theft Auto one that that stood out to you? Uh, Maxim calls it a mafioso masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, this is it again, though, right? Like, I love that the. The quote that they put in the ad is is they have other quotes from Game Press, but they also put Maxim on there, right? right? That they are trying to go after a broader audience. Right. And an audience of particularly men who I don't know, how would you describe the Maxim audience? Their endorsement makes me think you see boobs in this game. <laughs> is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't one of the predictions I wanted to ask you, but we can set that up right now. So based, based on that, based on this Maxim thing, I bet there are boobs. Okay. Or if not, there's like strong, like bikini, like titty show vibes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll put that down as part of the prediction. Okay. <laughs> so now we can we can talk about the commercials and the commercials and the box art 
which also doubled as some of the poster art or the advertising art, all taken together, was that how you expected this these games to be promoted? No, uh, absolutely. When you talk about it being more of a prestige vibe, like in the TV com- commercial, um, Mia Bambino is like being sung, like one of the most famous Italian uh, operatic arias. And there's like, and this is for Grand Theft Auto Three for Three. Yeah. yeah, there's slow motion scenes of like a car flying off a ramp, and and there is such a. I mean, it, this sounds stupid without having seen like the godfather but i i still see how this speaks a language that comes from that sort of aesthetic and that sort of of space um and is shooting for that sort of vibe i i was very surprised how uh almost like art it wanted to be i think yeah and i mean this is even if you haven't seen it i think you yeah you you almost recognize it i mean i live in the world so i know (laughs) That like juxtaposition of violent imagery and opera, With the beautiful, yeah, is something that is actually. I mean, it it happens in The Godfather, and it's kind of something that has been carried over to yeah, prestige gangster films or, yeah. or like or gangster uh, media. Yeah, yeah, it's like that juxtaposition. Yeah, it it has the connotations again of something that is like classy, more highbrow yeah. for for the sophisticated <laughs> adult. Classy, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, what do you think about the Vice City trailer? I've written down here, flock of seagulls, sunset, bikinis, more action. <laughs> Those were my notes. <laughs> Those are some good notes. That's about that, it. And I mean, that really is... Did it excite you to play the game at all? Sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, it has it has less... It has less of a vibe of like high art pretensions than the TV trailer for three. This one um, feels like we're rolling out into a fun crime time mm. a little bit more. Not that it's focused on you being the agent of chaos, but um, it's it's one step closer to sort of the tone that I was mm. expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of tone and expectations, we need to talk about this thing, this thing that I think we were the most excited to talk about, which is this segment from Nightline from July 2002. A historical artifact. <laughs> <laughs> About Grand Theft Auto 3. And I want to show this to Michelle just to give her a sense of what the mainstream media was saying about Grand Theft Auto. And so, of course, this is just one little snippet, but it is pretty representative of the types of things that were being said and the types of controversy that Grand Theft Auto 3 created after its release. And what's really notable here is that this is almost a year after. It's eight months after the release of Grand Theft Auto 3. And so, right, as usual, the mainstream media really only starts to get invested once they realize that this thing is actually a hit. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, I actually remember hearing about this a little bit at the time, the, the controversy around Grand Theft Auto. One of the weirdest things for me about this segment is that it starts out okay, and for a minute <laughs> you think it's not going to be what it is. Like, the host, Ted Koppel, starts out talking about how every generation has its own moral panic over the stuff that their kids like, and whether it's right. like rock and roll or music videos or like violent comic books or yeah, whatever. Like comics, rock and roll, violent movies, obscene lyrics. Yeah. And anyway, so you think that he's going to say, you know, we've dealt with those. We kind of, people might have um, panicked a bit too much. <laughs> that seems to be where this is leading. Yeah. And then we get a U-turn. <laughs> the, the literal next quote, I think, is of, of all the worrisome material swirling about out there, Grand Theft Auto 3 may have given our generation something new to worry about. Like, but this time it's <laughs> yeah. real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 quite a twist. 
It's so, so weird. Um, yeah, so this thing is basically in two parts. The first part is sort of an overview of the game. And then the second part is an interview with three people that we will talk about. <laughs> it is a wild composition of a television panel. But the first part is basically they found some like 12 to 13 year old gross kids like sociopaths. Yeah, and and we're like, look at what this game is turning our angelic children into. Surely nothing else has affected their development to this point. Yeah, these kids have some choice quotes. Yeah, um it just okay, my one of my biggest takeaways from this whole segment is how little you have to understand about human beings for any of this to make sense at face value. <laughs> like they put the mic in these kids' face um and one of the first things that one of the kids say is, says is like the goal of the game is to kill as many people as you can, get as many stars as you can. <laughs> and he's just like a 12-year-old being like, sick, it's gross. But they just take that at face value. Right. They're just like, look at what this child is engaging with, as opposed to like, have you ever met an adolescent boy? Right. Yeah. Right. This is the same kid who later says that like, gives the quote that I think they played three times during this that. It's as close as you can get to killing someone without being arrested or really killing someone. Yeah, and and they just take that as if it's like written on the back of the box. Right, yeah. <laughs> as if like this speaks for the experience. And apart from the fact that like just because a literal child says it doesn't mean that we shouldn't <laughs> interrogate that further. And it also notes that like it's rated M for mature. It's not supposed to be in the hands of adolescents and teens. And so like... I guess their parents are buying it for them. And then at that point, it's like, so what are you, if their parents have like said that it's fine for them to play it, what's your argument here? Like what's, right? what are we, what are we doing? What are you calling for? Like, what, what is this? Yeah. And this first part is really trying to explain to the general audience what this game is. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't do a fantastic job of, <laughs> of explaining kind of in fullness what these games are. Because when you have kind of the authoritative voice of like the voiceover of either Ted Koppel or like the narrator of the actual segment, it's always framed around like ability to kill police. Mm -hmm. And like the thing, this was a thing that everybody kind of talked about when they realized that you had the ability to hire sex workers in the game. Right. And then you could kill them to retake your money. And I mean, as you'll see, like this is not quite an accurate representation of the game. Okay. Like, it, these things are presented as if these are, like, the goals of the mission or the goals of the game. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they do bring in some other, quote-unquote, experts to talk about it. And and some are kind of speaking very generally, or at least or at least the soundbite that was allowed to be in this in this segment just is kind of just generally gesturing towards kind of the open world nature and that there is kind of choice with what you do within the world. Yeah. But then that's always cut off and then replaced with some other guy going... But you get more points if you shoot them in the head than if you shoot them in the but body. Also, like the points thing. It's yeah. like media talks about every game as if it's Pac-Man. It's like the yeah. only way they can understand any reward system. <laughs> yeah, it was actually it's always and this is something that's consistent. Yeah, the games are talked about in terms of of like just gaining points, like the goal of them is to gain <laughs> points. Yeah, just kind of a general misunderstanding of what this game is. And like not to discount some of the actual gross things that you can do in the game. Sure. But the journalistic balance here, or at least the attempts at journalistic balance, are are pretty flawed. Speaking of journalistic balance, <laughs> yeah, this can stuff. I tell you about panel composition in segment two? Yeah, this, this is stuff. the thing that I like had to pause and process when I first saw. <laughs> so. 
for the second segment, it's it's uh, Ted Koppel interviewing three people about the yeah, game. And We're all really, in a room together. Yeah, and this is really the meat of the segment. Yeah, of, the, yeah, of yeah, this yeah. whole story. Yeah. So our three panelists, okay, James Garbarino, who is a children's development professor at Cornell, Sergeant Gerald Neal, who's uh like in his fifties and is somebody in the DC Police Union, and then. Steve Crenshaw, a 17-year-old kid that they chose at random out of the nearest all-white school. <laughs> just graduated high school. Yeah. Steve he, Crenshaw. Just, so let me just, let me pause and talk about this for a second. First of all, like, it won't surprise anyone probably to hear that both James Garbarino, child development expert, and the police union guy are both like, well, isn't this just terrible? So they've set up a thing where, like, in from balance perspective... The only person who's like going to talk about this game, A, with any actual knowledge of the game itself and B, with any sort of like warmth to, or like potential warmth mm-hmm. towards it is the 17 year old child who like this a, a boy who cannot vote yet. <laughs> They're like, he'll be able to hold his own if there's anything if there's anything worth saying in support of this game. This 17 year old will definitely be able to say it in the face of this Cornell professor and this like lifelong cop who are hovering behind him. This is the other thing. So Steve is sat on a chair in the front and the cop and professor are sitting elevated on stools behind him. So Steve just like from his perspective, he it would he would just be looking at Ted Koppel. He can't see what these two adults are doing behind him. Like this is this would be very unnerving. Yeah. I think. I think Steve did a commendable job here. Honestly, like, does he say everything I wish he would have? No, but like, he for a seventeen-year-old kid, he does a great job. I, I just like the other thing that that I don't like about this setup is that I think when you have just <laughs> it presents it as if the the two sides of the argument on this are you know serious adults who are like obviously this is bad and like kids who are like but it's fun. They're, they could have also found a child development specialist or media scholar who was like, well, the relationship between mm-hmm. media violence and development is much more complicated. Like that, did, that research exists. And they had this guy, they gave him maybe two sentences of airtime in the previous segment. Yeah. And then, but don't have him in the studio because it's got to be Steve holding down the fort. Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, Steve, I think, though, does like a great job for... This this unfair situation that he's placed in. Steve, if you're out there, honestly, you did great. You did and, great. And so I did some internet stalking. Steve is out there. He's a lawyer now in Virginia. That makes so much sense. And I, I bet this was a formative experience of his. He was probably like in debate club and like ready for this and like knew. <laughs> the thing is, I bet he knew exactly what the other two were going to say. Mm-hmm. And so you actually can prepare like how you're going to respond. I think my favorite thing about Steve is that immediately... Throws those 13-year-olds under the bus, oh, yeah. <laughs> out of the gate. He's like, yeah, I was very concerned about what those 13-year-olds were saying. Yeah, he's like, this is not representative. These kids are clearly... Yeah, he, he's even like, I kind of think their parents should rethink their decision to like let them play this game. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, but yeah, so if we just sort of have this imbalance, right, where all the... Steve is kind of getting like challenging questions put to him like but don't don't you think like at one point they queue it up they queue up a clip which is just the character 
unloading a machine gun on a pedestrian street and then cop cars coming and lighting them up with a flamethrower thrower and then getting run over by a cop car. And then Ted Koppel turns to this kid and is like, now, what is the redeeming social value of right, this? Right, right. And he prefaces it saying, I'm going to use a highfalutin phrase here. Highfalutin then- meaning bullshit. <laughs> and it's like, and see, this is where it's kind of hard because Steve kind of fumbles through like, well, you know, there's a strategic layer to the game and there's hand-eye coordination. And I think that like kind of comes off as bullshit because I think it kind of is. I think the real answer to that is like, oh, I'm sorry, are we in a universe where everyone's entertainment has to have redeeming social value at this point? Like, can we talk about like 90% of American <laughs> media at this point? Like, Including this sensationalized segment on Nightline? Yeah, like, oh, or is it only like teenagers who have to justify like why there's like a, a moral upright value to everything that they consume? It's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah, the whole framing of it for Steve is completely unfair. Yeah, and there's no correct answer at that point. No, no, no. It's a trap. And then they make him play the game a little bit while talking to Ted Koppel. Oh, there, yeah, there are plenty of there are plenty of traps here. Yeah, because he's playing it. And he even he even says up front, he's like, okay, I'll talk to you, but I might not be so good at this if I'm trying to do two things at once. Or talking. Yeah. And this so, 17-year-old kid on national TV. And you're like, can you also be distracted by this thing? And then in the process of him like showing off the game, he's driving around and he nicks this cop car. Not even bad. He just yeah. like... And Ted Koppel immediately like, oh, I see you nicked a cop car there. Yeah. Like, do you have any, what do you think about that? That's not a problem for you. And he's like, well, that's because I was talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) Which I was like, yes. And then another line of questioning is uh, Ted Koppel asking if there's a limit to what could be shown. Like Like torture. Would you play torture if it's like, if the graphics are good enough, basically? Yeah. And Steve's like, I don't know. I know. I don't know. And yeah, and, and again, they come back to this, um, the thing you can do with sex workers. And here Steve tries to explain to him that actually, like, that's something you can do. Like, that's how the way the systems in the game combine. Yeah. You can do the thing where you, you know, you hire the sex worker and then you kind of park elsewhere and then have sex with them to, like, boost your, what does Ted Koppel call them? The life juices? Life juices, I think juices is what Ted too. Koppel says. It gives you some health back and then you can then kill the sex worker and, and get the money back, right? Mm-hmm. But Steve's trying to be clear that that is not like that's not your mission. That's not what you have to do. That is something that the game does allow you to do. But Tech Koppel does not seem to understand yeah. the nuance or even want to engage with it in any way. He yeah. just kind of keeps pushing on that point. Yeah. It's like, okay. And right. Like it is an abhorrent thing that you can do within the game, but it's very different if a game is telling you to do something versus mm-hmm. if that's something you can do because of the way the systems interact. Yeah. And then it pivots very much from there to like uh, Mr. Cornell. Please tell us about why young Steve is completely wrong about this. Right. And Mr. Cornell is like, well, I'm happy to tell you that pathways are forming in the blah, 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 like some stuff. And like, you know, it it makes it easier to act out in life if you've acted it out in a fictional world. And he says something about um, it's very different watching like a violent movie from actually having the gun in your hand in the game, which like you can see the character carrying the gun in the game but like my first thought was like oh so duck hunt actually <laughs> was like the most destructive like there's plenty of games where you use a toy gun peripheral right and, and i mean the other thing is that james garbrino is a childhood development psychologist right um so steve is 17, 17 8 years old right like so it's like they're using steve 
like Steve has already said, I don't think the, I don't know if these 12 or 13 year olds should be playing this. Yeah. If they're saying these kinds of things. Maybe their parents need to take it away from them until or they look at have some conversation about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like Steve's given the straw man argument to defend that he doesn't want to defend in the first place. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> But then it goes to Gerald Neal. And the question to Gerald Neal is is basically like, so over to you. How do you feel about all these cops being killed in this game? <laughs> like, that's Yeah. And, and then Gerald Neal takes this line of argumentation about how really, you know, at the end of the day, we're not really worried about kids like upstanding Steve Our here. Steve here. But we are worried about urban terrorists. Is the language uh, that he uses. Yeah, and how, how some neighborhoods are controlled by armed youth. This is also a an actual quote, uh, which, again, to me is like, oh, so you are you guys are bad at your job? Is that what you're saying here? Um, the implication of his argument here is kind of that like, oh, nice white boys won't cause any trouble. But like, you have to think about all those crazy black youth in the inner state. Who knows what they're going to do? And I hope it's clear how sarcastic I'm being with this. He also he has one point where he says, you know, a gun makes a little person big or feel big, feel yeah. big, and it's like no comment. <laughs> it just of all the things that have not aged well, I would say that this is one of them. Yeah, it's it's very. I mean, he's using coded language, but it's very clear who he thinks should not be playing these games and for what reason. Yeah, yeah, it's it's rough, but also demonstrative. I think. You just have to have such a oversimplified view of what culture is or what like objects of media or art are to think that there there can't be any value in in having things that like depict any sort of like violence or whatever. Um and that I mean I haven't played Grand Theft Auto yet so I this is not me making a a claim about whether this game like ha- whatever. I'm not saying anything about this in particular but it's just such a such a foolish and stupid view of how people engage with the things that they like. Yeah, and I mean, this is a constant. Anytime you see the mainstream media or people within the media without specific expertise peer into a world that they don't know anything about, often right. having to do with youth culture, right? Like very frequently having to do with youth culture. Right. It's almost always in bad faith and over sensationalized. And when it comes to games, I think one of the most damaging parts, and we still see this now, like, thank God that there are, you know, youth culture experts, tech reporters, game reporters who mm-hmm. are increasingly hired in non-specialty press mm-hmm. so they can actually give valuable context to some of these things. Like, I think a few months ago, Blizzard's relationship with the Hong Kong riots and how the mainstream press actually picked that up and in a lot of ways dealt with it in a pretty nuanced way. Yeah. But th- this that's that's a rare case. Yeah. And and this and this happens all the time, especially in terms of games where the emphasis is so much just on panicking about the content and not about the broader culture that develops around the games. Like there's always which we could say a lot about, right? Like there's plenty to panic about. <laughs> yeah, but that's usually missed, right? It's, it's it's a missing the forest for the trees type of thing. And I, I even saw this academics do this all the time as well. Like I was at a conference about a year ago, and the guy was just complaining about like this game that was like a fan-made game or like it was just made by one person and has been played by 50 people, but he was upholding it as though this is what everybody's playing. Mm. And no, it's like, dude, all you're doing is amplifying the fact that this game exists right. and putting it in the hands of people who don't know about it and now do. Right. 
with no acknowledgement that actually the problem is the wider communities and the toxicity in the communities that form around these cult- these subcultures. Right. Like there's just no understanding that it's always about the the content and how the content can have direct impacts on one's behavior, which has been disproven yeah. time and time again. Yeah. So yeah, um, it's 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 hard to blame Ted Koppel. He's just uh, a symptom of an enduring problem. It's not Ted Koppel's fault he doesn't know about video games. It is his staff researcher and writer's <laughs> fault for not setting up a more intelligent set of questions and a better panel for this. Right. But again, Steve, if you're out there, you did a great job. Yeah, shout out to Steve. But I guess now we can actually get you playing this game so you can assess for yourself how accurate you think these representations were. I can't wait to be turned into an urban terrorist. <laughs> oh, no. Bye. <laughs> Thank God you can't go outside because we're in the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) Um, But first, as always, I need you to make some predictions. So we've already got the one about the about the boobs. Yep. I said boobs. (laughs) Okay, that we will see them. (laughs) How about this? So this is a this is an open world game. You know, the structure of open world games. You have a bunch of people who give you quests and send you on your way. Describe one of the central NPC quest givers. Um. Use car salesman uh, at his lot who's uh, super in debt to a guy and needs you to go take care of it. That's a good answer. Thank you. Okay. Apart from the Flock of Seagulls song, what is one song you'll hear in this game? <laughs> um, that Don't You Forget About Me one. Okay. Will someone say the line, say hello to my little friend? <laughs> no. Okay, so pretty early on, you're going to get a mission, and the mission's called Jury Fury. Okay. What do you have to do? Take out the jurors. What does that mean? Uh, so there's going to be one of your boys or someone in your um, someone in your gang okay. <laughs> is going to be coming up on charges. Uh, maybe they're taking one for the for the rest of the team, um, and you got to go intimidate. So so not wipe out. You got to intimidate the jurors so that okay. they will uh, acquit him. Okay. As you cause destruction, you would have seen this um, in the Nightline uh, segment, your wanted level goes up and you get stars. Okay. And each star, um, your the attention you get from the police accelerates. What happens when you max them out at six stars? Um, you, get, you get sort of swarmed by um, multiple, multiple units in cars. They're also communicating with each other over radio so they can track you much better. And they're just going to gun you down on site. They're not, there's no, like, they're going to just be shooting at you right at the gate. Which of these voices will you not hear in the game? Dennis Hopper, Burt Reynolds, Don Johnson, or Gary Busey? Jesus. Um, Burt Reynolds. I don't, I don't think they could pay him enough to make him be in a video <laughs> game. <laughs> Everybody else has a price. Everyone else you can be bought, I think. And then finally, will you ride a unicycle? I absolutely will not. No? No. Okay. So those are the predictions. Okay. <laughs> they can be on your way, and we'll see how you do next time. Awesome. Thank you for listening. Um, as always, you can find more information about this episode and about us uh, and about the materials we talked about today in the show notes or at neverwasagamer.com. You can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. And if you are enjoying this podcast, it would be really great if you would rate or subscribe or tell a friend. Yeah, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time when Michelle will have finished her first Grand Theft Auto game and be one step closer to becoming a gamer.